Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST245, the Alternatives Buzz LP. Always appreciate an opportunity to get into an Alternatives record. And this time, as we dig into it, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Jim Thompson on the show. Yeah, I love it when an Alternative joins the Mojack show, the Mojack family. Love it. So, so cool to have Jim on. Very cool. And Jim has got a really great story, so hang in there for the interview. It's amazing. Yeah. Hey, Brent, before we get started, can I hit you with a spiel? Yeah, man. Okay, I got to read you the news for a bit, and then I want you to give me your latest digestions, which, gee, I can't wait to hear all about. But first, <laughs> but first, the news, okay? Yeah. I got to talk about four new records and a couple of books. First, on the SS Tree... A new Don't Sleep record. Dave Smalley's band. Yeah. Back with a second LP, Sea Change. That's spelled S-E-E, not S-E-A. S-E-E change. So Sea Change. Follow up to 2020's Turn the Tide. Excellent record. This one's out in June on End Hits Records. Really excited to get this one. I loved uh, the first LP and the, uh, the prior EP by Don't Sleep. Pretty much like anything Dave Smalley really makes me pumped for when we cover all during one of our missing SST catalog numbers. Yep. Can't wait to just gush over just perfect. <laughs> Mud Honey. So we know Mud Honey has got a new LP out, but also a new Australian tour 7-inch has come out on Tim Records, TYM Records, Light Your Way, Get On My Cloud, two new songs, limited edition, Get On It. Um, an old fave of yours and mine, I think, Brent, Dex Romweber has got a new record out. Oh. Good thing going. Have you seen that one? No. Yeah, out on Propeller Sound Recordings. Always love a Dex record, yeah. of course, from the Flat Duo Jets. Um, his last record, or at least the one that I'm aware of, was 2016's Carbaro <laughs> from Bloodshot. So long overdue. Dex was super active over the last few years online during the uh, the pandemic and when he couldn't be on the road as much. And so um, I'm sure he's got a lot of tunes he's been working up for this new record. Can't wait for that. Yeah, his, his sister passed away, hey? Yeah, who used to play drums. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know who's in the combo this time around, but uh, at least, you know, at least Dex is still putting out tunes, right? Yeah. And then this one escaped me for the last couple of months for some reason don't know why but the damned have got a new record coming out you probably saw this brent pre-order um yeah called darkadelic yep this is their 12th studio album follow-up to 2018's evil spirits which made both yours and my top tens for that year yeah so obviously you know we can't wait for a new damned record big time man can't wait yeah uh, and then a couple of books i gotta mention one Finally, we're getting a memoir from Thurston Moore. Yeah, I saw called, that. Yeah, Sonic Life. Almost 500 pages out in October, out on Doubleday. Yeah, pre-ordered that too. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's for sure going to be awesome, not just for Sonic Youth or SST content, but also his side projects, New York noise content, and of course, record collecting content because yeah. you know, you know Thurston is like, heavy into that so that's going to hit all the notes that book got to yeah. get that one yeah 
And then finally, Brent, you actually sent this to me. I, I had saw it too, but I'm I'm totally pumped that Dave Markey has got a photo book coming out. Dave, of course, is from Sin 34, Painted Willie, the We Got Power zine, and a filmmaker we've mentioned on the show. He was a guest on the show way back when. Uh, we've mentioned, of course, his slog movie, Desperate Teenage Love Dolls, Love Dolls Superstar. Uh, but now we've got a photo book, Scenes from the Inside, and it's coming out on Commentarivum. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Commentarivum. It's a little press and label indie. Looks cool. Can't wait. I will be pre-ordering that as soon as humanly possible. Yeah, looking forward to that. All right, that's the news, man. Gee, I'm excited for you to tell me what you listened to in this last week. <laughs> okay, well, good news. Okay, here's what I listened to. Hey, before, sorry, I'm just going to totally interrupt you. Before you jump in, though, uh, I got to tell you, though, I am loving these spiels because I went on a huge, like, far side deep dive for like the last week. Yeah. Um, because you reminded me of that band. I haven't listened to them for a while, but man, I love all those far side records. So keep them coming, man. Okay. Gem Hexed. 1995 Restless Records. I think I came across this Ohio band on a comp, and I think we talked about it on the show, but I can't for the life of me recall which one. This is the first of two albums. It's indie rock with a power pop bent. Doug Gillard is the guitarist, vocalist, and main songwriter. He's played in Guided by Voices, Cobra Verde, My Dad is Dead, and I believe he's currently in Not a Surf. You would probably know better than me. Um, it's good. I wish I could remember the comp where I heard this band, Gem. Oh, yeah. Weird. Grizzly Fiction. Come on, Bean Juice. 1990, Community 3. I think Love I it. Yeah, I think I found them through the label, which was a short-lived but cool Brooklyn label with bands like God in Texas, Agit Pop. This is their second and last LP. They were a New York band that moved to Philadelphia in 1988. It's kind of garagey post-punk. They reformed briefly in 2012 and did a new EP, My Emotional Geometry is Like Spider Webs. You can hear that. Um, their 1991 single and their debut, Scrape Face from 89, on their band camp. Unfortunately, not this record. And there's a connection to this release, which we'll get to, to the alternatives. To the al alternatives, yeah, Buzz record, yeah. Yep. Galloping Coroners, a.k.a. VHK, but I don't speak Hungarian, so we're going with the English translation, translation Galloping Corners. Uh, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce their actual name, which is Hungarian, but... Um, Galloping Coroners is the English translation. I, I also won't attempt to pronounce the album title, but the English translation is Hammering at the Gates of Nothingness, 1992, Alternative Tentacles. They kind of get called Shaman Punk or Psychedelic Hardcore. One of these semi-obscure but amazingly weird ba bands Jello was signing circa 85 to 95 that nobody ever talks yeah. about. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Formed in Budapest in 1975. Super interesting history. Like, they were banned from playing at home in the 70s and early 80s in, in communist-controlled Hungary. It would be great to have a documentary about them, and maybe there is, you know, over there or whatever. Maybe we'll give them their due when we do our Alternative Tentacles podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Gas Kill, Granite Iron Oak 2000, self-released. New Bedford, Massachusetts hardcore featuring vocalist Kevin Grant. We've talked about some of his projects before, such as Wirelines and The Hidden. I think it was possibly Michael T who hipped us way back when to Gas Kill's amazing full version of My War. 
This album is just mm, so right. good. Great production, killer riffs, and the vocals rule. Ranging from like a throaty bark to a Merrill Ward-esque croon. It's just awesome. Give is the name of the band. Electric Flower Circus 2014. Moonflower Records, their own label. This, I believe, is their only studio album. There are a number of singles and EPs, though. You can hear many of them on their band camp. Also collected on a comp called Singles Going Confetti. Not sure where I heard of this band. It's melodic hardcore from D.C. Maybe through the through the end on end podcast but i'm not sure all of the musicians were in other projects but none i had that i've heard so uh, more digging to do for sure some quicksand-esque riffs less angular and more rock maybe great vocals from crucial john you dig this band give electric flower circus check them out okay glass eye bent by nature 1988 bar none records podcast shout out i got hip to this record on rob alba's that record got me high brought forward by larry smith and it's just killer arty rock band from austin circa 83 to 93 pretty hard to come by this record it's not up on streaming but there is a band camp that has this album and the follow-up hello young lovers but that's it it's really bass driven brian Beatty on bass and occasional vocals it's jangly but also quite angular at times Probably fans of Talking Heads would dig it, but that's just an easy reference on my part. Um, Mm. Guitarist vocalist Kathy McCarty is just phenomenal. I would recommend checking out that episode to get like a lot more of a thorough history than than what I'm doing here. They were also connected to Daniel Johnston. Um, So you should check out that episode. They do a far better job of describing uh, Glass Eye than I'm doing right now. Green Magnet School, Blood Music. Yes. I was waiting for that. <laughs> yeah. 1991, Sub Pop, in conjunction with Genius Records, a short-lived California-based label. This was the first of two albums. They were a Boston band, three guitars in the lineup, 90s noise rock, a dash of Mud Honey, some Killing Joke-esque industrial vibes. A couple of them went on to form one of your faves, Ryan. Do you know who? What? Yeah, Black Helicopter. You're putting... You're... Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's a band camp with this album on it too. You should check it out if you haven't heard it. Green Magnet School. The Gray Spikes, Sex and Hate, their debut, released on cassette by Vital Gesture, but on CD uh, by Japanese garage label One Plus Two Records. I used to get that label through GitHub quite a bit. I'm not sure if they still carry it, but I don't think it's an One act- Plus Two. Yeah, I don't think it's an active label anymore. You've. Mm. You've got Tony Fate on guitar, Randy Stain on drums. They were both in killer short-lived band The Sins with Bill Bartell, Jeff Mortal on bass, and Manson Lee on vocals, who was just a great punk rock vocalist. They released a follow-up in 1996 on Nitro Records, which I've never been able to find, and that's the short-lived Belgian label Nitro, not the Dexter Holland Nitro. Tony Fate went on to form the Bell Rays, and this is just great, great straight up rock and roll by, you know, rock and roll made by punk rockers like the Humpers or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, are you going to see the Bell Rays when they come through with Social D? I don't think they're playing here. No? Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm away while they're in my city. I'm I'm not missing Social D as much as I'm missing the Bell Rays, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah, I've seen them a few times. They're, they're super awesome. I booked them with Todd Cote. 
Leafy Green Booking. Oh. Reference to the... There you go, man. Back to the Dinosaur Jr. episode. Nice. The Golden Horde, self-titled, 1991 on UK indie label Mother Records. They were an Irish band. Unfortunately, this was their last record. They came onto my radar because of lead vocalist Simon Carmody had a connection to Nicky Sudden through the Last Bandits in the World album. If you like late 80s Ramones, you'll love this. Like, I, I love all eras of Ramones, but I have a real soft spot mm-hmm. for Too Tough to Die, Animal Boy, Halfway to Sanity, Brain Drain, those records. I've heard the first four Ramones records so many times. Um, and when I got into Ramones as a young metalhead, before I even knew what punk rock was, it was kind of during that era, specifically through the song Somebody Put Something in My Drink. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we just love that song. This album reminds me of those songs in that era of the Ramones. Uh, you know, the songs are a little bit longer than Pinhead or whatever. It's super catchy pop pop rock. The Golden Horde. Are you thinking like these these are like the uh Poison Heart Ramones, Pet Cemetery Ramones, yeah. that type of stuff? That stuff. Okay. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. I am in i am kind of the same with you. Like I actually I was remarking to myself like I don't even own the first four Ramones records. I have them like in collections, I guess. Yeah. What I listen to, if I want to listen to that Ramones, is I listen to the It's Alive record. Oh, yeah. That's what I listen to. And then if I want to listen to a Ramones LP, I usually don't go to end of the century that much. Um, I know there's good songs on there, but it, it just has never sunk in. I kind of start at Pleasant Dreams onward. Yeah. Like if I want to go into, you know, the listen to an album by the Ramones start to finish. Weird. That's kind of how I am. I've heard I like I own multiple versions of all those Ramones records, but uh, I've I've heard the first four so many times that, you know, I still listen to them. But yeah. OK, last... yeah, I still listen to it's I still listen to it's alive, but I rarely listen to those first four records. Yeah. Okay, here's my last one, Ryan. Government Issue, Complete History, Volume 2, 2001, Doctor Strange. This is more This more or less collects the latter half of the band, the Giant Records era, mm-hmm. You, Crash, yep. and the live album finale. This is probably blasphemy, Ryan, but I prefer this to the earlier records. Cl- speaking I of, do too. Speaking I of do the too. Damned, yep. like they were clearly influenced, I would say, by the Damned and other yep. goth or post-punk for this era. I'm sure many listeners would disagree, but for me, You is probably their best record. But I will also freely mm-hmm. admit I'm not an authority on government issue, for sure. Yeah. Do you have, like, I have both of those double discs. Do you have volume one? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. So you're, I mean, you're you are able to compare it all and go, this is my preference. So that's yeah. legit. I prefer the latter half stuff, too. Jay Robbins was in the band for a while there in that kind of era. And that didn't hurt either. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, I was just thinking to myself this week um, and talking about the Ramones made me think about this again and and whether I want to throw this idea out to you or not. But this was my idea. I was reading like on a blog or something about desert island discs or whatever, you know, like Uh what are your your 10 desert island discs, which is a stupid thing, really, if you think about it. But it got me thinking to myself, what would mine be? And you know, I've thought about that over the years, of course. Like, what are my all-time favorite records? Like, if you could only have one, is that what you're getting at? No, if I could only have ten. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Are you going to hit me with your top ten of all time no, right now? No, here's what I was 
gonna oh. th- uh, this is what oh, I was okay. going to throw at you. For the next episode, you write down uh-huh. your 10, and I'll write down my 10, uh-huh. and then we'll try and guess each other's 10. Guess? Yeah. Oh, no. I, 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 would, I request a, a rule change, because you'll probably guess my 10, and then you'll have like eight of your 10 are going to be like Norwegian no, doom no, metal no. that I'll never guess or something like that. Of my I'll Desert never, Island never... albums, man? Come on. How long have you known me and you don't think you can guess at least five of my 10 favorite records of all time? Like, I'm not picking obscure doom metal if I'm on a desert island. And I can... <laughs> <laughs> or like Swedish prog rock yeah, or something no, you're going to put happen. on there. You're going to be like, you're going to be like, ha ha, you didn't pick six of them. <laughs> Uh, are you, you into want, this you or not? You seriously want me to guess? Yeah. <sighs> sure. So I have I have to write down my top 10 of all time. Yeah, the two and the then 10 I records. Have to, well, I have to, these are 10 records that you, the only 10 you get to listen to for the rest of your life on, on this desert island, right? That's the, the oh concept. Oh, God. That's, that's, that's so easy for you to pick of mine. That's not even... Okay, well, I guess it'll be hilarious how... How poorly I do. Oh, so you let's stop do and it. think about it. I think you can think of some of mine. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, man. Okay. Well, we're going to do that. I, I know we share like common records that are really important to us, but for every one that you're going to pick them on, you're going to be like The Clash, you know, Frank Zappa. <laughs> you're going to pick, you're going to pick everything. Well, well that I have you to, know I can't just, mine. I can't just name, it's not just naming bands, man. It's like okay. picking out the specific records too. And stop, well, yeah. now you're just telling me the answers, like. <laughs> <laughs> and in your voice, too. The Clash. Okay, well, sure. All right. Challenge accepted. And uh, I, I hold out no hope of even coming remotely close. But but uh, sure, it'll be fun. Okay. Okay, are you, uh, are you ready to get your buzz on? Yeah. History lesson, part one. All right. Alter Natives. Buzz, this is the very, very first Alternatives record I got. It's actually like one of these records that I bought because it said SST on the back. First intro to Alternatives. This is the one I know the most and I've known the longest. Mm. There's a very cool spiel that I'll get to um, in a few minutes that actually kind of fits my story in terms of how I got into uh, this record uh, out of a book, though. Someone else had a similar experience. But let's go back to the start quick for Alternatives. We've had them on twice before. We've had Chris Bobst from the band on as a guest for both of these episodes, SST-75, the Hold Your Tongue record, and SST-185, the group therapy record, both killer Alternatives records. As a trio on this record, though, now, Greg Ottinger on guitars, Chris Bobst on bass, and our guest, Jim Thompson on drums. Yeah, on the previous albums, Eric Ungar on sax and flute, but he was out of the band by this point, which you'll hear about in the interview. Yeah. Ryan, I'm just going to read you something here. I think this is from an Alternatives press kit, like, towards the end of the band. It sounded like they were planning on continuing on as a band. And they did, it, you can find online references to the to unreleased material for a fifth album. Like they had an album pre-SST as well, which you can hear on their band camp. So they, they definitely had material recorded for a fifth album. You can hear some of it up on YouTube, like live versions. I'm just going to read this to you here. 
With the departure of sax flutist Eric Ungar in late 1988, the natives forged a new direction in their musical concepts. Now a trio, the natives abandoned their spasmodic sound for a more groove-oriented portrayal of their sonic landscapes. With the solidification of the trio's power fusion, the alternatives recorded material for their third SST recording, Buzz, in late 1989 in an old spacious 24 track converted tobacco warehouse. Consider their most refined concept to date. Buzz exemplifies the native's unique ability to construct a truly organic realm of sonic expression. A U.S.-Canadian tour followed the release of Buzz in the fall of 89. However, much to the native's dismay, and despite excellent critical reviews, the record received little distribution or promotion. The Alter Natives continued playing select dates and mini-tours on the East Coast, playing the Montreal Jazz Festivals in both 88 and 89. Negotiations were underway for a European tour in December 1990-91. The tour went well, though, keeping spirits high and setting the stage for two similar projects in 91, a split single released with Richmond's Gawa Records and a split single with Langedor Records of Hamburg, Germany. After these releases, the natives toured Europe for a second time in support of the records. Check this out, Ryan. Now in 1992, the natives are anxious to release new material with tasty bits of a year's labor. Projects for the year include a recording of full-length video and touring the U.S. and perhaps Europe also. One thing is for sure, you'll breathe a sigh of satisfaction at the diverse opulence and singular inspiration that resides in the music of the alternative alternatives and I, none of that happened i don't think in 92 yeah a couple of split singles after this record and that's it yeah hey brant i've got a spiel out of the we can be the new wind book oh. i don't think this book was uh, yeah i don't think this book was out when we last had alternatives on in fact i'm sure because it was back at episode 185 the group therapy lp here's a spiel about the alternatives out of Alexandros Anisiadis book, We Can Be the New Wind. Um, and I've got a few, actually. I'll just uh, sprinkle them throughout, if you will. Uh, okay, Alternatives. Hands down, one of the most unique outfits included in the book. Alternatives from Richmond, Virginia, had their roots in the hardcore punk scene of the 1980s, and their sonic approach can be classified under the tag Total Lunacy. <laughs> Formed at night. Formed in 1984, and then it mentions the band, the band members, uh, Greg, Jim, Chris, mentioning how they were also in uh, Gwar, and then, of course, Eric. They released their first cassette demo, Friends of the Farm, in 85, and they managed to give their own perception of wackiness. We were inspired by any and everything Chris mentions. We did not limit ourselves to any one genre or inspiration we used everything we could find to create our sound. Musically, we all were rooted in punk hardcore, but by the time we started playing together in winter of 84, punk and hardcore was as safe as milk. It became a straight-jacketed genre and fashion trend, and we weren't interested in being easily confined. Our biggest influences were SST bands, The Residents, 9353, Kiss, Captain Beefheart, Charles Mingus, James Brown, etc. We were interested in any and everything outside of the mainstream. It all happened organically. 
we practiced at least four to five hours a day, five to six times a week for many years. In doing so, we became more proficient as players and our sound changed as we progressed. Our continued goal was to create compositions that pushed and challenged our abilities. Well, mission achieved on this record. Yeah. Here we go uh, a little bit further into the book here. However, alternatives didn't get a good reception initially. Here's Chris again. A lot of people hated us and didn't consider us a real band because we didn't have a vocalist. How many times have we heard that, hey? Yeah. We were too outside for punk purists and too aggressive for hippies. That's not to say that we didn't have fans because we did. But for the average person, we were from Mars. Chris admits, adding, During our first national tour with COC and Richmond Group Honor Roll, we played at Fender's Ballroom in Los Angeles. During our set, we were drenched in spit, which happened to us a bunch during that tour. Gross. Instead of bringing us down, the hailstorm of spit was confirmation to us that what we were doing was right. We all felt it. I will never forget the feeling of empowerment standing as close as I could to the edge of the stage as thousands of punker idiots spit on me as I played the music I loved. It was a night I will never forget and one that inspired us to continue making music together for the next seven years. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's, you know, there's two ways of looking at that. That's packing it in or having it embolden you. Yeah. I would say so. That's a risky move, opening for corrosion of conformity at Fender's Ballroom. (laughs) (laughs) I would say so too, yeah. Um, And here here is a discussion on the Buzz LP. Uh, Buzz, 1989 LP, the band's apex. An alternative sounded cooler and catchier than ever, like a more frenzied or psychedelic all- like a more mysterious voivod, nothing face era, Whoa. shifting from jet, yeah, shifting from jazz to punk, and from progressive rock to alternative rock with such an ease. Buzz is definitely their highlight, and I was a damn fool to slack it when I first bought it twenty years ago. Kind of like me, in the sense that I, like I said, I bought this one first intro to alternatives. I bought it because because it said SST on the back but it really didn't sink its hooks into me until way later. Um, Here's uh, Alexandros again. I was buying records from the labels I already loved like crazy. So when I saw SST, I knew I had to get it. Initially, it freaked my post-teenage mind, just like me. I said, I hate it instantly. I'm not sure I said I hated it. And only revisited it years later, just like me. No more saxophone, but this time everything sounds abnormally excellent from the starter pudgy to the claustrophobic sex face or the eerie black hole buzz is a thing of beauty buzz our third and last album is the one i think represents us best to me buzz is at the peak of our collective abilities that's chris bopst again yeah so i would agree i mean it's a great record yeah man yeah it's awesome it's uh quite the creative statement and and clearly like they were at the top of their game as musicians yeah and i mean it's it's different not having eric in the band but i don't i don't know they're so proficient at this point 
on their instruments and with this songwriting and the song we'll talk about the songs later they're wild but it's like it's a totally legit album as a trio like there's so much going on yeah do you want to get to the interview with jim yeah man all right we're joined on the podcast today by jim thompson jim thanks for being on the show thanks a lot brant it's a it's an honor oh well the honor's all mine Okay, so let's talk about you for a bit. Are you from Richmond originally? Uh, no, I was born in Alexandria, uh, Virginia, right outside of D.C., right over the river, mm-hmm. and uh, lived a year of my life in Arlington, Virginia, but my dad packed up the family, took an early retirement out working for the federal government, and moved uh, everybody to a farm, apple orchard, that he started Mm. about an hour west of D.C. And he uh, had an organic uh, apple orchard, and he was a kind of visionary farmer at the time. Uh, He was, you know, in the 50s. He, He had this idea to have an organic apple orchard, yeah. So that was an interesting environment to grow up in, to say the least. I I don't remember any, the year I lived in Arlington, I don't remember that at all, but I remember growing up on the farm. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, uh, I stayed there from, until I moved to uh, Richmond, I had to go to college, BCU in 1984. When did you start playing drums? Started playing drums uh, probably when I was about 12, 13. I took an interest in them. Uh, I was interested in playing a lot of instruments, but it just seemed like my brothers all played guitar. And uh, I didn't have a lot of that kind of patience or fortitude to sit down and uh, chords and mm-hmm. songs. And uh, I kind of wanted to just do something different, but I was drawn to them. I saw a Christian rock band. This was kind of a thing in the seventies and our little church out in the country there uh, in rural Virginia, rural Virginia was, uh, had a, it was pretty traditional had a methodist hymn book and godspell was kind of a big deal christian rock was kind of a thing so there was a christian rock band of course it was loud and rocking and the church booked it because they thought you know the kids would be into it right and we were yeah. uh and and so this was a classic like 70s um situation i i recall the the, how cool the amps looked you know and just how cool the stage looked i mean it was the first time i'd been in front of a of a rock band right yeah and they were good like they had you know farfiz organ i mean it's like garage uh, (laughs) rock almost what were they called do you remember i mean it it was flame i remember the name did they like do gospel music or did they write their own music no no it was it was like long-haired hippie jesus people right <laughs> it, it was definitely not the 
old Southern cross, uh, hymns that, you know, are cool, you know, uh, the, uh, like Appalachian, mm-hmm. uh, stuff and got, you know, uh, there was, there was a lot of that in the area. Um, but you know, this was like my only view into the world uh, outside of the farm was a little black and white TV that we had. And we picked up DC television stations and uh, radio. So, um, you know, I love, had a lot, had records. My bro- older brothers had records and their, you know, their rooms were full of posters. They were older than me. Right. But you know they 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 were into Hendrix, Cream, and uh, Beatles, and Leon Russell, and uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, uh, that whole deal, you know. Right. And I would inherit their, you know, get their records in forty five. But Flame, the Christian band, like was was. Uh, so so impressionable. Yeah, it was so impressionable, and and like the it made a huge impression on me because I remember that I could remember the melodies for years, wow. and didn't have a tape or any, anything I listened to. It's just I re, it was so hearing like you know people singing over loud rock, you know, and the and the, and the, there was like gr- girls in the band. They looked cool. You know, yep, everything the, about it, and it was, and the drums were like really whoa, you know, that was like okay, that really sucked me in. So it wasn't a bad thing to go, like, yeah, I want to play drums. So sorry, long, long story, but then uh, took an interest, and one of the neighbors' uh, daughters was dating a drummer, uh, right? Okay, like neighbor being like a field or two over. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so they were a, a, a boss family, actually. Uh, it was like a guy that worked in a dairy and, uh, his daughter was dating a drummer and he was selling one of his kits. So came over, set his kit up, let me play, take a, you know, showed me how to do some stuff. And, uh, we set it up in the cold storage and on the, <laughs> one of the, near one of the barns and, had my first lesson and uh and then it was like well you know you need the drum set so worked out a deal so you know worked out something with my parents so i could swing the deal to you know buy the drums right (laughs) so then it was like i took a few lessons but i pretty much just had like it wasn't like i sat down and started going crazy learning rudiments and everything It, it i went from I, you know, I was doing other stuff too. I mean, I was playing drums, but I was running, I was into track and stuff right. like that. So I was doing other stuff, but I kept, uh, I kept them set up in my room. And then there was like, I, I just learned the joy of playing along the records that I like. Right. Yeah. So, you know, once you identify those things like, okay, that what I've been hearing this whole time is that, that hi hat, you know? Okay, that's what the ride symbol does, you know. So, and the record that I recall really playing along to a lot was Get Your Yah Yahs Out by the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. 
especially the drum beat for Sympathy for the Devil, which is totally different than the mix, you know, on the on the album, uh, the studio version of it. It was so that was exciting, you know. It's kind of getting back to that live thing I felt with the Christian rock band, you know. It's like, oh man, I can hear that excitement, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so that was kind of it. And off to the races. Yeah. Well, you can do a lot worse than than Charlie Watts, that's for sure. If you're gonna, you know, learn along to a record. Okay, so when does JT and the Morals come in? That was in uh, high school. So had went through this. Uh, Christian uh, boarding school that wasn't too far from the farm, about an hour, back in Alexandria where I was born. So JT and the Morals was formed when I was 17 or 18, kind of like end of my junior year and then all through my senior year. Hmm. And at that point, I had been turned on to punk rock, more music, but there were, you know, there was like two very reliable kids who were like bringing in all the records they could get from the import section, um, and some, you know, like out outdoing each rec each time they would come back with something more outrageous, you know, like. <laughs> G.G. Allen and the Scumfucks. When you learn about that and you're 16 <laughs> years old, it's kind of like, this is a crazy world, you know. Yeah. Um, Are you the JT in JT and the Morals? Yeah, so I was singing in that band. Okay. I brought my drum set with me, and it was set up in this in the basement of this gym. But there was a, a, a kid who was, you know, or a guy younger, a little in the next, like, he was a year under me, uh, younger than me, and he had a he was just better at drums. And then I don't know how I ended up singing, man. It's just there it was a weird uh, thing, you know. But it it was a mix of it was mostly it was all covers. It was all like uh, I mean, we did REM. We did we did songs from from Murmur. You know, we did songs from uh, Chronic Town. We did songs from uh, we did some stones. Wow. We did uh, romantics. You know, I mean, stuff like this. Right. So we were doing like playing at, at school events and stuff, you know, like our social events, battle the band, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But not as close as we were to D.C. because of the of the school being kind of insulated uh, I didn't have in a lot of interaction with, you know, going to people's houses and playing music and stuff. It was all kind of under, you know, in, in the school, you know, it was gated, you know, or like whatever. Like we were definitely uh, not part of the, uh, of the city, you know, escape. And so, or we were, but we just didn't get to interact with it that much. Right. So... I did, you know, we go to Georgetown um, to a party and, you know, the exorcist steps are over there and uh, go over there to uh, buy records. There was record stores and Commander Salamander. So, you know, 
know. We were definitely, I was getting exposed to, to that stuff. But JT and the Morals was just kind of a hodgepodge of uh, whatever any of us were listening to. Did you get into D.C. to see any shows or anything? Yeah, I did. I got in to see um, quite a bit of stuff, actually. It's an old 930 club in D.C. space in particular. Uh, I mean, Minor Threat and, and all the Discord stuff was, you know, at peak bloom around then. But I was not, like, it kind of scared me. You know, like, I was intimidated by by the scene. I didn't, uh, for whatever reason, I, I watched it from, you know, like, across the street. I never got in the pit or anything. Right. I was more in a garage I got into garage rock and psychedelic stuff. There was this thing called the Paisley Underground happening in yeah. San Francisco, and I thought that was cool. I liked that 60s stuff then. There was the bunch of bands like the Vipers, the Fuzz Tones, um, Liars from the Liars from Boston. Um, Chesterfield cool, Kings. creepy, crawly kind of garage rock cramps. You know, yep. I I loved that stuff, and you know, I could have been into punk rock and been into that too, but I just was like more into that. You mm-hmm. know, yep. But I liked you know, um, flowers of romance and pill for some reason. That stuff struck a, a chord with me. Okay, by the time you moved to Richmond, then you must have been just like in heaven with like super arty scene dying to be in a band yeah um i don't know if i was thinking about being a singer so much as just getting free so uh being in the at the at the you know christian school uh and then you know growing up on the farm when i i i, I hadn't gone to R- richmond i was going to going to shows in D.C., and I met these really two girls one night at an early 10,000 Maniacs concert. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were playing, like, small clubs. Yep. And this would have been, like, summer of or spring of 84. And actually, it was they knew Natalie Merchant. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, we all ended up talking. And... I thought these girls were the coolest. They were super nice, super sweet, super stylish. Natalie Merchant was their buddy, but they were they all seemed to be like friends. Natalie was cool. And they told me about Richmond. And I really didn't know where I wanted to go to college. Didn't know if I wanted to go. Uh, so I was looking around. I, I wanted to go to Athens, you know. Right, so I was yeah. looking at University of Georgia thought that was a great scene. I loved all the bands that I heard from there, like Pylon, Love Tractor. Really liked the first Love Tractor record. That's actually a big alternative influence because mm-hmm. that's an instrumental yep. record. Yeah, I can see it. Yep. Yeah, totally. I was totally obsessed with that record. They played a lot at 930 Club. And of course, they knew R.E.M., you know, like, I and I just thought... Um, they were great. And um, so talking to these girls, they just told me like about Richmond and how I would love DCU. I mean, my, you know, at this point I'm dyeing my hair black and it's long and I'm wearing like Paisley 
uh, sh- shirts and stuff, you know. Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, you'll love Richmond. Uh, and they said VCU was great, had a great art school. So I checked it out, and it was uh, kind of uh, pretty low bar entry. It was a state school and it was definitely very affordable at the time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I went there sort of sight unseen and I didn't know anything about Richmond, uh, other than some field trips I'd been to. And, uh, and of course the tobacco, but those girls were right. And, when I got to Richmond, it, it really blew my mind. Mm-hmm. It was liberating. It was uh, vibrant. I mean, I guess at that age, you could say that about any place seems like super exciting, but Richmond definitely had, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the generate from the 60s to the 70s was pretty popping underground scene there. It seems like it was really still quite bohemian, you know, with like the dairy scene and stuff like that. The dairy, yeah, and the dairy was kind of, you know, later, like by the time, you know, there were some older hippies in Richmond were were more like punks, you know, kind of not like, I mean, I would only use crass as an example of like you had commune minded organic eating macrobiotic uh, alternative lifestyles galore in, in Richmond. Yeah. And because I grew up on an organic farm, uh, I I could, you know, like I was completely saw a way to be like, Oh, this is, you know, that food was kind of, punk too you know like eating mm-hmm. be- eating like becoming a vegetarian and being macrobiotic is like that was a pretty radical that's a pretty radical thing to do yep you know and you don't realize it until you go back home and you see your old friends and like you just realize how different you are you yep. know yep um but yeah so i just was immediately uh taken by richmond and taken in by Richmond, accepted by Richmond. I felt like I had a place there. So the first show I saw, and I met Chris, well, Greg Ottinger um, was my roommate. So I got there in August of, late August of 84, and Greg Ottinger uh, on the 18th floor of this dorm building was my roommate. (laughs) <laughs> and he was from Northern Virginia and he had some like, it was kind of like, Oh, thank God. I mean, I, you know, you immediately go and check out the record collection, right? That's the first yeah. thing you do. <laughs> so that's what we did with Greg. And of course, second thing is, am I going to be able to pull the bong out? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, and that was okay too. So thank <laughs> So things came together uh, there pretty quickly. And, and so, within just a few days we had met Chris and all these other people. And I, I mean, like, I think the second night I was there, maybe the, even the first, I'll have to ask Greg, but I think the first, I went, we went to see battalion of saints mm-hmm. at, uh, 
at uh, uh, Hard Times. It's a club called Hard Times. And so I saw kind of the whole arc of Richmond scene. You know, like I saw the, the hippies there. I saw, you know, punks that looked like they were in Battalion of Saints. There was White Cross, you know, there was uh, Absence of Malice. There was, you know, hardcore. Right. And that's when I got into heart. Like, that's when I started listening to hardcore. Like, I didn't get into it in D.C., but ironically, when I got to Richmond, it was mostly through, you know, stuff like SST at that time. And um, hearing bands evolve and then hearing, like, I had to get kind of conditioned myself to, to like hardcore for sure um so yeah but when i saw like you know not not battalion of saints but like when i saw the bands when i saw live hardcore i was like holy shit (laughs) i needed to see it i just didn't uh, give myself the opportunity you know um so got into that a little late i mean things were already starting to get metal with hardcore then like my friends were telling me like ah you really missed like you know but I did see Bad Brains around that that same year. So, but they were, yeah, I mean, they were still incredible. Mm-hmm. But to see a hardcore band in full bloom, like Minor Threat or like uh, any any bands that I wasn't really into, like Agnostic Front or something, you you just if you were there, you could you would be impressed whether you liked it or not is one thing, but you would definitely be impressed by the spectacle and energy what about jazz i mean like i feel like this is a common theme with some of these sst uh bands that got jazzier as they went along it, it's it seems like especially the drummers weren't necessarily into jazz they just learned to play in a jazzier style yeah i i was thinking about that today like because i heard i was listening to that song nubbing i think and and there's like a kind of a jazz part you know yep where where i'm playing a kind of jazz ride cymbal pattern you know and we're doing some finger snap overdub and um i don't know like that definitely was not in any formal way a thing that we were applying that we had some formal training or whatever but i think around that that same year i had a friend who sat me down one night in front of some speakers and played me a dizzy gillespie song and you know i was probably stoned or tripping and he just said you have to listen to this and like i remember uh him kind of uh miming or you know acting out the song with wild you know gesticulating <laughs> uh and but there was this I, I don't know the record it's some live record and it's you know it's dizzy gillespie just taking a just un, you know it's just unbelievable solo you know i don't even know what to call it yeah and it was uh wow, that's jazz. Okay. And then you look at the picture of him on the album cover and he's got those like giant cheeks puffed out like a, you know, 
uh, you know, blowing all that air into the tiny hole. So uh, that was that kind of stuff. You know, you were just you're ready. We were ready for it at that age. I think uh, at, at one point too. I know certainly before Buzz. You know, Eric Unger. I'm sure Chris talked about him, um, the sex player, a guy flute, sex and flute, and the first three alternative or those two full lengths. Yep. So uh, he uh, he was he was he had a collection of jazz. You know, he had uh, I can't remember exactly. I mean, you know, he talked about John Coltrane a lot. Yep. And on his advice, I bought some Coltrane a Coltrane record. Uh, he was into Oscar, Oscar Arcadum, and and. I had been doing like work for this uh, old hippie guy that I worked at this vegetarian restaurant, it was a hippie regular guy that had some cash and he came in there a lot. And he, um, I would do like side jobs for this guy. Like he, he was uh, buying houses and flipping and was kind of a re- real estate guy. Mm. So he would hire like you do this $5 an hour labor for this guy, like demoing a house or something. And anyway, this guy, um, was one of these people that as soon as CDs came out, he hit, he had a, you know, and it was expensive at first. Yeah. And of course, you know, what the fuck? No, I'm not going to listen to a CD crazy. Like, you know, just, just, you know, rejecting the new, format um but this but you know you couldn't deny the sound quality so we were all like oh shit you know but this dude just replaced all his records with cds immediately so he had this crate of records or two that i was like what are you gonna do with these records or somehow it came up like he didn't want them so he kind of worked out he just kind of gave them to me i kind of worked it off or something he really didn't care. I mean, he was like, I'm glad he got rid of them. Yeah. So I still have these records and I would say it's about, you know, takes up about, you know, Peach's record store crate full of LPs. And that was my, that was a big thing for me. Cause I was just like, he had a lot of good stuff. Mm-hmm. John Coltrane live at the village gate. Pharaoh Sanders, Eric Dolphy out to lunch, Mingus, Ellington, and uh, John Coltrane, uh, Agarta, that Miles yep. record, yep. Agarta. And so I'm like, oh. especially Agarta, it's like, this is jazz, this is cool. And, you know, even though you didn't have like bebop chops or anything, like, the, the guy, you know, the guys in Miles's band are, you know, incredible musicians. But when you listen to those records, it sounds like a just amazing jam session. You know, you, you don't have the ear to really know what they're doing musically. It was a vibe. Yep, yep. In a silent way, it's just like, oh man, you know. So it just kept evolving the appreciation of, of jazz and stuff and. Uh, you know, I don't think, yeah, there was maybe a deliberate attempt to sort of do, to fake jazz, you know, mm-hmm. 
whatever. I mean, can you fake jazz? It just whatever <laughs> it is. It's music, you know, like, and just like, okay, like, I want to do something that sort of sounds like this, but I don't really know how to play it, but this is my, this is my take on it. Um, and I know Chris and, and, and Greg were, were riffing on that stuff. Greg was more always listening to rock. I mean, of course we had steady diet of butthole surfers and great shows coming through Richmond flag Minutemen, uh, but now Saccharin Trust, we became snakes. We opened for them on that tour in DC at DC Space. And that was a huge wow. uh, thing. Because <laughs> no they were they had been on tour and playing those songs a lot. It was that band was so good right then. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it was it was so good. I was like blown away. Blown away. Yeah. And so that's not jazz, but it is, you know, a little bit, you know. Yeah. Okay, let's fast forward a bit to this Buzz record. So um, Mm -hmm. you mentioned Eric. What was Eric's status in the band Circa Buzz? Like, he's not not on the the album. Eric was out at that point. Uh, It had gotten frustrating for all of us including Eric, you know, it was just uh, not a good, it was not a good, uh, real, it was not a productive relationship anymore. Hmm. Eric wasn't there in the beginning. And then, you know, he was, and it changed things quite a bit. So it's different bands with Eric. I was never super, sure about what we were doing with Eric, you know, mm-hmm. personally. I mean, I was just, that was, you know, the guy, that was the guys up front. I mean, I was just trying to, you know, I was just playing drums and uh, Eric would maybe, I feel like he wanted to be seen as, it was important for him to not be, just a punk rocker or there had to be something not pretty about anything Eric wanted to do. Hmm. I don't know if that really explains it well, but it was just a, for me, it was a strange time for me creatively, like, because I felt reined in a bit, but didn't have the authority to, you know, personal confidence to push back. Right on ideas. Like if I listen to those records now, it's like, there's not, there's just too much. There's no, not enough like self editing going on, (laughs) (laughs) which live it was okay. But like for me listening back, it's harder because it just takes me back to those moments. And it's like, where does anybody get a chance to breathe in this music? Buzz is more, if you you can hear it, it just is more open. It's more like, okay, you were just kind of, it was, and I'm not blaming this on Eric. It was just a liberating, a liberation period for us. Hmm. You know, it, it's definitely different from the others. Like the songs are longer. Songs are longer. You know how, how you, you have a burst of energy when you break up with somebody sometimes. Yeah. 
if it's not been a good relationship, you know, and and so that's that's what you're hearing a lot on on Buzz is a kind of a, a newfound freedom, sense of freedom. The songwriting process obviously changed a little bit. Yeah, I think you know when I hear of that record now, I hear um, you know we there's like dub influence. We had we had been exposed to Universal Congress or not Universal Congress though, but Saccharin Trust, and then Congress uh, was coming right after that. And of course, you know, there's metal, uh, not metal, but the chunkier parts are uh, Greg being pretty pretty riff driven. Yep. Uh, it definitely and, comes uh, out. Yep. Yeah, they were heavy. There was heavy. Uh, I remember uh, "Injustice for All" was kind of one that was being listened to quite a bit amidst all those other <laughs> jazz records and yeah. stuff we were finding. And was your drum kit getting bigger? Uh, <laughs> no, no. But Greg, yeah, you know, Greg loved Paul Leary too. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, uh, and. Uh, had a Roland, you know, that Roland uh, jazz chorus is, you know, you didn't hear a lot of punk bands using that, you know, at that time. And I think Greg's finally ended up being kind of a jazz chorus and that gets run through a Marshall. So he gets a pretty, it's a pretty punishing sound if you're standing right in front of it. Right. Um, but Greg really made that, that that combination work. And he had a very kind of singular style. Yeah. It was a riff. You know, we were just, the, the songs are, we became a kind of, uh, Dave Brocky from the Gore founder, I remember he one time, he would hear us practicing in the dairy and he would paint while we were practicing and he would hear us working on these things. And it was, you know, one riff. One one thing you'll notice, like a lot of times with alternated stuff is like the songs sometimes don't even come back. There's like A, B, C, D, like yep. <laughs> instead of an A, B, A, C part, it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A. I, uh, I noticed. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's kind of, a. I, I came up with a word for it, and I it was it's a dumb word, and I I never pushed for it. But well, anyway, back to what Dave said. He was like, "If you guys ever listened to Stravinsky, I had never heard Stravinsky," and he told us about "Right of Right of Spring," "Right to Spring," and uh, or is it "Right of Spring"? Anyway, I think it's right. And told us, yeah, oh, yeah. People, people rioted when they first heard it. It was, you know, it's like, you guys have a sound. It's like, I didn't know how to really describe it. And I thought that was cool. Like, it, I didn't go and learn Stravinsky or really study him or anything, but I heard, I listened to that piece. And it was like, okay, this is a, this is a, um, uh, assembly of, of parts, this piece, this big, moody, expansive piece is an assembly of parts. And like, so a symphony of riffs, 
is what I thought. It's mm-hmm. like a symphony. I thought, let's be like a symphony of riffs. That's what we'll be. We'll write songs that are, I'm not trying to sound like an asshole here, but <laughs> uh, I was like, it, it's, we're a, a, a riff symphony. So symphony, symph, sonics, I think I called it. Symph, riff, sonics. <laughs> well, if that was your goal, I think you achieved it. Like, I one of my questions here was are these recorded all in one take or are these like parts stitched together somehow? <laughs> I don't think we ever really did uh too much of a of a stitch uh thing. I we kind of had to uh, for me especially as a drummer because the changes are fast on the dime and you you had to be kind of on your toes, like I mean, it was it was you had to be in shape to get through it. So to get the you know, we weren't. I'm not that kind of drummer, like studio wise or whatever that can just yeah punch me in here because the energy is so different mm-hmm. uh, at that point. Yeah, you just lose that. I mean, some yeah punching. I I recall they you punch in like bass like in guitars parts but um couldn't really do too much with the drums yeah well i mean there's no way you would be able to record something like this without playing together as a band yeah yeah that was basically um it was hard and, and this but with buzz in the studio we had more we had we had extra time, I think, so we had time to uh, experiment. It was a big space. Like I said, it was a tobacco warehouse, the mm-hmm, flood yeah. zone where we recorded it. Yeah, flood zone. It was so. Yeah, flood it, zone. It was like an old warehouse that someone turned into a studio, or you brought gear into this into this old warehouse. No, it, it had been turned into a studio. It had been. Uh, it was in this part of town. It's just like a bunch of old warehouses. Yeah, and this, this guy, I think he was a musician that started it. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was a full-on um, deal. I remember setting the drums up somewhere pretty far away from everybody, like using the room, uh, mm-hmm. you know, getting a vibe off the room for sure. Adam Green was, I think he was just a friend of the band. Mm-hmm. Adam uh, came from Northern Virginia too. Uh, he was, yeah, friend of the band, you know, in the scene in, in Richmond. He was uh, doing our, our live audio. He was oh, doing our yeah. live stuff. Okay. And so it just, you know, that segued into him doing our, uh, our time in the studio. So I think he did group, yeah, he did group therapy as yep. well. Yeah, he did, yep. And some of the kind of auxiliary players on the record, Paul Watson on trumpet from a band called Orthotonics. Tell me about, about Paul and, and if you remember his band. <laughs> and Paul is, you know, Paul was one of my favorite, I mean, uh, musicians in time, older guy, just kind of my brother's age, older, you know, 10, 12 years older than me. He, uh, Orthotonics uh, were very, like, wild avant-garde rock uh, in the vein of stuff you would have heard in New York, downtown New York at that time, early uh, pre sort of lounge lizards uh, era. I think George Cartwright, I'm trying to think of other 
you know, early Zorn. I mean, they were, those are the contemporaries of these, these people. Um, and certainly Pippin Barnett, the drummer from Orthotonics, uh, did stuff with Fred Frith and, uh, they were connected to that scene in New York. It was brushing up against the free jazz and stuff like that. And yeah, orthotonics were pretty, uh, underground band. I mean, they were unclassifiable mm-hmm. and we, we tried to play with them as much as we could. We really respected them. So Paul was in that band. Uh. Uh, Paul went on to be a crucial part of Sparkle Horse. I mean, he, he's on the first two Sparkle Horse records, but I mean, he had so much to do with the songwriting and of that band. Like he's very like influential Richmonder, um, and who is very Richmond. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was just also super cool. I mean, when you, when you, you know, when you're younger and you've got like an older musician that digs what you're doing and you, you really like them, it's pretty awesome feeling. Yeah. So Paul was that he was like kind of mentor to us and he was happy to come down and play pocket trumpet on pudgy. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Who else do you have there? Steve Finberg. He, he did some percussion. Finberg, um, yeah, he was uh, from Northern Virginia as well, living in Richmond, going to school. Steve was, um, he also was really good friends with the Bad Brain. And Steve and myself and Chris promoted the first Bad Brain show in D.C. or in Richmond together. Uh mm-hmm. About two years before the flood, the floods at the flood zone, before the flood zone closed as a venue and became a studio. Uh-huh. So Steve <laughs> um, plays percussion. He's a drummer. He was in some uh, local Richmond bands. And he brought, uh, of course, you know, there was always a chance of. HR or some of the bad brains showing up. Usually it would be, if it was HR, he'd be with his brother Earl. Mm-hmm. But, uh, he was, he came and he was coming and going, uh, in Richmond, HR. Yeah. He kind of lived in the kind area. In, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he's on the record. Like, I think he screams or something. I was going to ask. Yeah. It's credited as Joseph J, but I, I wasn't sure. That's him. Yeah. Wow. Which is, it's kind of ridiculous because he, somebody in my, I can't, I can't say who, or I can't like even say this in a way that's pointing fingers, but there's definitely a lot of uh, marijuana smoking going on. And if HR was around, there would probably be three times as much going on. <laughs> and he was, I mean, it's just like, they're just, I remember there were just people that just would go wherever the most weed was, whoever was the most generous person doling out the weed. And he just, uh, I think uh, there were people in our entourage who certainly uh, had the ability to keep him stoned. 
<laughs> and he came down. I, I, I forget. I guess that he was paid in weed to <laughs> scream on our record. So, <laughs> well, I but mean, of course, we, we were tickled to have had him on there. You know, uh, yeah, totally. Well, I mean, like we've we've talked to the Always August guys, so I mean, we're pretty w- well versed in like that culture, I guess, that was going on in Richmond at that time. Pretty wild, man. <laughs> <laughs> That that song that he screams on Black Hole. What's going on in that song with the you know the rain and it sounds like a cat and uh, a doorbell and some other some other samples. Black Hole is kind of that's one alternative song that I heard somebody playing really loud. I remember walking in somebody's house after Buzz came out. I mean a year within that year and I didn't know who it was and I liked it (laughs) and it's the first time I ever had a reaction like that to anything I did and uh, it just felt like wow we kind of did something you know and Black Hole is kind of everything Richmond was to us at that point so there were some found sounds down there the cat you know there was a, it's kind of a slower one right mm-hmm. it's got that big noise mm-hmm. jam section in the middle yeah i wish i could listen to it right now i just i remember love playing it live um and it finishes the record i think right yeah did you know at the time that this was going to be the last alternatives record no we were really um, a happy family right then. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was no reason to think it would end. Although, you know, I had probably more side projects going on than those guys. I mean, I always had, I was always trying to like experiment with different stuff. Yeah. How much longer did you keep going as a band? I know you released a few singles in, in 1991. 91 was it, um, was the last uh, year. Did you do any touring for Buzz? We went to Europe. Oh, wow. Um, I believe that was a tour that we did where we did some shows with the Universal Congress of. We found out a little too late. I think it may have extended our career to have... Um, known that we had that people actually liked us over there mm-hmm. um, I'm sure Chris has told you of our some of our trials and tribulations we in some ways were a bird of paradise kind of band and I, I say that like we thrived in our environment of Richmond we had you know an alternative show was it was a bigger thing than and it sounds like cliche but it was bigger than us like we were part of we had a it was a community um and there was a lot of diverse uh groups musical groups there like you know um and we were in we were in the stew i mean we were in guar we were in we had alternatives and there was a lot of uh things we were we were cooking in Mm -hmm. and so 
when we toured outside, I mean, D.C. a little bit. We had some fans in D.C., but then when we started going across the country and stuff, we just were not, uh, people didn't know what to do with us. Yeah. And it was, uh, it's kind of one of those bands that you kind of have had to have seen it in a good old, a good hometown show. You would have gotten it. And I've known some bands that's, that's what it's all about. Like you really get it when you see the band, like playing to, you know, the room of their friends and family. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, you yeah. know, it was very particular, especially for us. Cause you know, we, we were, uh, just not, and it, and it never really came across even as much as I buzz is like my favorite record we did. We never got it. Um, the energy on, on tape. Hmm. It just, it just didn't, we never figured out how to do that, you know? Yeah. And, but we made, you know, made the records, uh, but we, ne- I, I don't think we ever really, um, got that special live feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, some bands are just like that where they're just like, you know, their hometown fans or their regional fans just can't believe that just can't understand why they're not huge. Right. And you're probably right. Like part of it has to do with you're hearing the record and it just doesn't capture necessarily what, what your fans that, that have seen you evolve know about you, you know? Yeah, because how do you get your fans on the record? Right. You know, they're they're cooked into it, you know, but, like, it's, yeah, it was just one of those things that uh, didn't, didn't uh, ever really translate fully. But in Europe, there was more of an openness to it. For sure. And we really liked that we felt, you know, appreciated. Yep, um, yep. And so that was a big deal um, to to go over there and uh, and and get some love, you know. And uh, I think it would have. I think by the time that happened, we were starting to grow apart musically. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, it. That came out of. I also think well. I don't know what comes first or if they're like one follows the other or they come, you know, in lockstep, but there was just a feeling of uh, a collective frustration. We felt, you know, try going out and, you know, we didn't feel the love, you know, all the time. And, but we worked hard at what we were doing. Uh, we practiced a lot. We were really, you know, pretty disciplined with that, you know, yeah. getting together to rehearse four or five times a week, getting tight. You know, that was a big thing for us, being really tight. Yeah, well, you couldn't, and, uh, you couldn't play the songs on this record without a lot of practice, just to, even to remember the, you know, the sequence of the, yeah, you know, of the, whatever you call it. it was, yeah. <laughs> the it was r- a the continuum. Of spring. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I wish, you yeah. know. But uh, it was, you know, it was just a, Expression of our lives, you know, at that time, and I remember just going to the practice space after, you know, working, and I, you know, uh, 
as a groundsman for at a cemetery or like some one of my crazy jobs where I just remember coming in there straight from work, you know, just getting there, seeing those guys bullshitting around for half an hour or not, just going straight for the drums and playing for three hours, you know, like, yeah, it was just everything, man. You were just living it. You didn't have, uh, have any concerns other than the present moment. You just said something, an expression of your lives at the time. I feel like the cover art says a little bit about that. I feel like there's, you know, some, uh, I don't know what, some symbolism with the glasses and the rabbit and the coffee pot. Yeah, pet rabbit, Chris's uh, girlfriend's rabbit at the time. We all wore glasses. That's in neighborhood Oregon Hill, which was cheap rent. Tons of people live there because of that. Um, you know, you literally would just walk in people's houses without knocking. I mean, uh, you know, setting up shop in somebody else's house. I mean, it's the nostalgia for that is like, part of me is like, I would never, I could never live like that again. Mm-hmm. But I do love the, in a, in a world where, you know, you walk outside and, and you, everybody's looking at their phone <laughs> can make you really depressed sometimes. Yep. <laughs> and to think about that, that, um, openness, you know, just some people showing up and hanging out and ta- having conversations uh, without these other distractions. I mean, that's just when I think of that time, uh, it's really fortunate to have, uh, that time, yeah, the artwork on the back. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. the guy Fred that did that. He was always in my house playing Pinochle and just was around and lived across the street. And um, It's a beautiful painting yeah. of the band. Yeah. I like it too. Yeah. I actually should. That's like, I would, if I ever get that record, you know, that cover framed, I would, I would just use that side of it. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I should have been the cover. Yeah, yeah, it's great. You you mentioned that you, um, you know, you were playing in a lot of other projects at this time. Not surprising, you know, everybody's looking for a good drummer, right? So tell me about uh, some of that. Thank you. Tell me about the band Plate. Yeah, Plate. Uh, Plate was, uh, um, you know, rock situation. Um Again, you know, a bunch of friends playing together. Plate was, uh, had a vocalist, Steve. Uh, oh, God, I can't remember his last name. But anyway, so Plate was, I'm trying to think what the influences in Plate were. A really great guitar player, John Cook. I mean, he went on to play, he's probably the current, he's been with the residents for at least 15 years mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. He sort of took Snakefinger's spot. I mean, you can't take Snakefinger's spot, but yep. he's been their main guitar player for years. Um, just phenomenal uh, guitar player. And uh, have you heard it? No. I would love to, though. <laughs> Especially now yeah, after he- hearing that. Yeah, I would like to hear it myself. Um <laughs> It's experimental. There's like some spoken word on it. Um, 
think Chris is on it. Chris is doing a poem on there. Hmm. Oh, now I really want to. I'm going to make a note. <laughs> yeah, I'll make a note here to find a plate for you. That's that's cool. And hopefully, it's not like uh, there's there's so much of our stuff. There's like there's this tapis that's unfortunate that I I would like to get rid of on some of our old recordings. I just don't really know how to describe that. Like everybody was listening to wildly different things. Like somebody in that band was really into the Pixies, but I wasn't so into the Pixies at the time. Mm -hmm. Pixies. I like the Pixies, but they just weren't my, my thing, but they're, that's what was was in the uh, people were listening to then. This is what are we looking at late in the eighties? Yeah, man, I'm I, I'm sorry, I can't really. Oh no, that's fine. Please. That's fine. Um, yeah, I'm gonna find it for you though. Yeah. Uh, so I was also, um, you know, I was also playing with started playing with Bayaritmo, which became a full on salsa orchestra. Mm -hmm. I was I wanted to learn hand drums, but I didn't want to like join the drums the the hippie uh drum circle thing so much i wanted to learn you know some of the forms and all that so i was starting to to mess around with that at the time yeah uh we're gonna see you four more times on the show too with hotel x at least four more oh times. yeah well hotel x was definitely after um the alternatives Mm-hmm. But I knew all the August guys, uh, all these August guys, and I mean they're super dear friends. At what point did you move to DC? I moved to DC in 2012 uh, from New York. I'd been in New York. I went from I lived in from '84 to 2003. I lived in Richmond. And then I left Richmond and was basically in New York for almost 10 years. And then I moved to D.C. in around 2012. And D.C. was just um, closer to my mom, who was getting older. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to be like an hour away rather than you know, four or five hours away. And, um, I, I was familiar with DC, you know, from this is the big city to me growing up. It was, it was close. It's where we would come for field trips and to see shows. And yep. of course, you know, I got a lot of, uh, live music I experienced between the ages of 16 and 18 here. So I knew, uh, I mean, ironically, Ian Mackay, uh, we played with Fugazi. I know we played with them before Guy was even really full-time in the band. He was with them. Mm -hmm. But I think when, I, when we played with Fugazi and Richmond alternatives, Guy was, uh, he was just, he wasn't playing guitar. He was, he was hype. He was a hype man. And he was like, right. yep. wild man, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but Ian was always, uh, so approachable and 
I think Chris knew him a little bit because he lived up here and was into hardcore. But I started like, I don't know, I called the first time I called the Discord house was to ask because I knew those guys were vegetarians and into health food, at least some of them. So I called there, uh, seeing if anybody wanted to pick apples after my dad passed away in 86. Um, my mom was trying to run the orchard and, um, I was in Richmond and I was trying to help her get apple pickers together. Mm. So a bunch of those guys came down and picked apples, but I maintained, uh, and as a lot of people do, Ian was always accessible. So if you had any, if I had the question about where can I get tapes duplicated, who does mastering, who do you use for this? Ian was always like there. Right. Uh, and so I knew, you know, I knew some of those guys, I knew some people in DC, but when I got here in 2012, I really didn't know, like everything had changed. And I, ironically reached out to Ian and, and through Ian, I started um, doing stuff with Brendan and we became like studio mates. We, we rented a same practice space studio for a good six or seven years together oh, wow. and became, you know, really good friends. And so Brendan recorded time is fire. I don't know if you've heard. I have. Yeah. My band. I have. Yeah, so the last time is fire record is all Brendan, and that's in the studio we shared. Yeah, it's excellent. Is there going to be another one? What's yeah. the What's the status of the band? We're kind of in, in a bit of a hiatus. We're a, we're definitely a uh, pandemic casualty, I would say, in terms of uh, the band changed everybody's lives so much that the ability to get to uh, re- you know, rehearsals, you know, to get back on any kind of routine uh, just became, has become very challenging. Like mm-hmm. two members moved out of town. Uh, lives are different. People are playing in different bands and stuff now. So, you know, it's okay because it's just not some, if it, if it's, when it's, when it happens, it'll be time for it to happen or it'll, it'll be more of a natural thing. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff you've yeah. released on your label, Electric Cowbell, like point our listeners to, you know, some albums that they should check out, both with you and, and, um, and some other stuff as well, because you're on a lot of the records as well. I'm on the Time is Fire stuff. Uh, CSB Funk Band is a band I played uh, drums in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I dig those records. Um, there's one in particular I'm very fond of called... Um, Above the Stars, and it's spelled with two R's because it's an instrumental tribute to Gangstar. Mm. I don't know if you ever heard the L. Michaels Affair um, tribute to um, Wu Tang. No. Oh, man. You got to check that out. Yeah, what is it? Um, it's the um, uh, L. Michaels Affair, it's called Enter the 37th Chamber. Okay, and it's kind of like I've heard them called cinematic soul, but it's like a lot of musicians that are sort of um, related to the Daptone family, oh, like Budos Band or something uh, like that, maybe. Yeah, yeah, they they toured behind Raekwon and 
and some Wu Tang members, and they did this record in 2009, and it's just this. Oh God, man, it's a great record. Um, Enter the 37th Chamber, and um, so CSC Funk Band. We I used to um, have distribution through Fat Beats, and Fat Beats had a Brooklyn warehouse. And, you know, of course, they had this famous storefront in Manhattan for years before that. But, like, they hosted a Gangstar tribute in the warehouse. And we we were, like, the backing band uh, for uh, some uh, MCs who were dropping, were doing, like, guru uh, lyrics. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, we backed Master Ace. Oh wow! And that, yeah, we back <laughs> somewhere on YouTube. And uh, then we got the idea. It's like, hey, you know, El Michaels did that cool thing. Why don't we do one for Gangstar? So that above the stars record, I really love. And our uh, bass player Jesse just did an awesome, just an awesome job uh, producing that record. Over time, we just went down to the Fat Beat Studio and snuck in off hours and did the record. So. That is a record I think people would dig. I also really like Fachada, F-A-C-H-A-D-A. Um, Mundo Secretos is the record that um, we put out. Uh, there's another band called Of Tropique, and that's Of, O-F, and then Tropique, T-R-O-P-I-Q-U-E. They're a Japanese instrumental group, uh, which features a killer clarinet, uh, player, but it's kind of a tropical instrumental sort of cartoony, uh, like you know, fans of Carl Stalin. I mean, not really, but it's just like there's some quirky, cartoony aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I got uh, Matt Groening ordered a copy on Bandcamp, and I swear to God it was him, because I was like, saw the name, Googled the address, and it's like in this place in um, Santa Monica that's like super uh, ritzy street. Right. And then I saw where he bought a mansion up there like a few years ago, so it's got to be him, right? (laughs) But it makes sense. Oh, he likes cool music. I mean, anyway, that was, I got a kick on it. It's the little things, man. Yeah. Um, but that's a cool record. Their last record, Buster Goes West, is really fun. And uh, there's another cool band on the label. I mean, there's a ton of stuff. So I just would direct everybody to go to the Electric Cowbell Bandcamp page and just check out stuff there. And there's also a, a, like a big cartel uh, shop if you do like Electric Cowbell search on uh, on google it'll take you there there's some everything that's on Bandcamp is pretty much there a lot of the i do small runs of vinyl like limited edition not on purpose just because <laughs> i just um don't want to have a bunch of records in my closet but uh all of it's available digitally mm-hmm. i mean there's a good sampler that's on all the streaming services there's two samplers there's like 101 things to do in Mongolia and there is uh, one called um, 
Oh God, there's another. Um, can't remember the name. There's another compilation uh, on streaming services too. But if you just go to Electric Cowboy, you'll find a lot of these. Yeah, stuff. yeah, and you took some of your uh, skills that you learned promoting shows with Bad Brains early shows to booking tours for some of the artists on your label. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of a natural segue into, um, being just kind of an agency. Yeah. Working, you know, those things all kind of, I mean, as time has, as the times have changed, you know, sort of, working on a release is kind of like you're working with the group. You're all, everything becomes like you're kind of managing, you're kind of promoting, you're kind of, um, you're just a part of the project. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, very like project oriented, uh, with, with stuff I do now. Like I, I love, you know, that aspect of being a little music producer. I mean, I can say, Hey, what do you do? And I can be like, I'm a music producer. I may be hustling, uh, painting houses and stuff on the side, but I yeah. can say it and be, and it's honest, you know, like. So what are your, so, what are your projects for 2023? Uh, right now I am, um, I'm doing a booking, uh, helping out my friends at, uh, sublime frequencies, you know, that label. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Hisham Mayette is a friend of mine and I've, um, presented some of his acts in DC or, you know, bands here in DC over the years when I was doing more active live music pr promotion and production. So I'm booking, helping book a tour for Baba Commandant, um, who is a, uh, a musician from Burkina Faso. And uh, he's got, I mean, I encourage everybody to check out that band and look out for some shows, not in Canada, unfortunately this time, but in North America um, and Europe. If you're, in, if you're listening to this and you're in France, he's going to be in uh, France later part of April, mid-April maybe. Um, but anyway, anything on that label is, is amazing. But I'm helping book his U.S. tour. Hmm. And I'm going to be uh, booking the Dwarves of East Aguza, which is, uh, the other co-founder of Sublime Frequencies, Alan Bishop's band, they're based in Cairo. And if any fans of like Sun City Girls would, and just good music, will dig dig it. Um, instrumental, I think it's lar largely instrumental. Uh, trio, I'll be booking a tour for them in the fall. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'm starting to do uh, a little more, you know, after uh, the pandemic, I sort of dropped out of doing a lot of, you know, DIY music production, but I'm starting to do a little bit more of that now. And I'm op I'm pretty wide open to whatever, I am itching to play some music, but I've had some uh, major like life changes, uh, in the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. So I've been working a lot out of town. Like I joined the union and started, I got hooked up painting uh, film and TV sets. Uh -huh. They were filming a lot of stuff in Richmond. So I was going down there 
keeping my apartment in DC, um, actually through one of the Guar guys that hooked me up with a job down there. And so I went down there to work on Dope Sick. Then I went to Walking Dead because they were doing stuff in Richmond. Wow. And then I went to a movie called uh, Grave Diggers. And then I did Swagger, which is in season two now, I think. So I was in Richmond a lot working, but keeping my foot in the door in D.C. And it was great to have a lot, have that work uh, to help me uh, get my feet back on the ground because I had a pretty disastrous uh, year in 2020 where just everything changed like mm-hmm. it did for a lot of people. Yep. And I had to do that pivot and I had to find a new, you know, I had to find a way to, uh, to make a living. And, uh, I just sort of let a lot of things go that I'd been doing and I lost, uh, a considerable amount of, you know, my time and, and took a hard hit financially cause I had a uh, big tour. I booked, canceled because of the pandemic and just a lot of plans changed and uh yeah i got this great work and i thought i did and so i was able to crawl out of debt and you know keep keep a few releases coming out on electric cowbell um but now i'm just getting my feet back on the ground and kind of just just a new rolling out a new leaf in uh, DC right now. I'm yeah. wide open and excited about, about what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I'm enjoying like doing booking right now. It's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's sort of like you get quite, um, quite an endorphin hit when you, when you get a tour book yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or when you nail a show, you know, yeah. yeah. you know, and the, and, and the puzzle starts coming into focus. There's a, uh, uh, there's a group uh, and it's a group effort and it's just nice to feel uh, that energy of trying to make a special night come together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I like, I get, I really like that. And, you know, like I said, sublime frequencies is just one of my favorite labels. So to be able to help, get one of their uh, groups like out and so people can experience it, something special. Uh, yeah. I get off on that. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, I love it. I love it. You know, I can relate Jim. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Gosh, man. I hope you edit it. Cause I'm just <laughs> rambling fool here. No, it's great. No, it's great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's it's cool to kind of go down memory lane. Okay, my man. Thanks again. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Jim, for joining the Mojack family. Another another window into what the heck was going on with uh, this band, this record, and this scene. Hey. Oh yeah. Like this this is a scene that is sorely underdocumented. I look I love Washington DC and DC hardcore and everything like that but all this was going on just a few miles down the road and there are million it feels like there are millions of documentaries and books about DC 
and almost nothing about uh, this scene weird, except for, of course, like, you know, things where, you know, there's the Gwar documentary, the Gwar book, but not about like alternatives, always August, stuff like that. Yeah, when you watch like the Gore documentary and stuff too, I think they actually say in the in the documentary or maybe in the book, like there's no way Gore could have happened in any other city. Ah, you know. Yeah, that probably makes sense. I, I think for me, the interview really captures the magic of Richmond during that era, which obviously yeah. was a really special place. You can just tell Jim, and I would say the others we've spoken to, like Chris or uh, Tim, John, and Lee from Always August super grateful that they had that experience and are really aware that they got to be somewhere special at a pivotal moment in their lives and also the life of that scene, you know? Yep, for how, sure. How cool is it that Jim was into all of that early 80s garage rock? <laughs> yeah, not surprising though. I mean, it was out there. I was thinking uh, a lot of his references, I think they were kind of like, what's that label that I'm thinking of? Midnight Records? Yeah. I think he was mentioning bands on midnight right i was thinking about that label man i haven't checked out you know bands on the midnight records label for a while yeah oh he also mentions that first love tractor record the self-titled one from 82 on db records being an influence on alternatives so cool that he mentioned them it's a killer record by a killer band um who are back together by the way and released or are releasing a new album possibly this year along with reissuing their back catalog that one, that self-titled record, has been remixed and remastered with bonus tracks on Happy Birthday to Me Records. So uh, if you haven't heard that, people should check it out, especially if you're a fan of Pell Mell. Check out that first Love Tractor record. Yeah, I was just going to say it's come up a few times in the last, well, I don't know, this year on the show anyways, and on the Pell Mell episode in particular. Yeah. When he talks about moving to Richmond and just you know, he was dying to be in a band. I can totally relate to that. Like when I graduated high school, that was my mm -hmm. only ambition to move yeah. somewhere cool and play yeah. in a band. <laughs> <laughs> and you did. Yeah. Hotel X gets a mention and only like 50 more episodes to go until we're seeing some hotel, hotel X. So uh, maybe like a year from now, looking forward to that. His label, Electric Cowbow Records, it, there's a great band camp where you can easily kill an hour or two just checking out some of these bands that he mentions like csc funk band um, he mentions l michael's affair that's not on his label but their album enter the 37th chamber and um the csc funk band above the stars i probably don't know enough about the music of wu-tang clan or gangstar well enough to to fully appreciate those records uh, but I was digging both of them this week some great horns very funky some soul and afro beat very cool stuff. I was checking out the band he mentioned, Dwarves of East Agusa. That's cool. We've mentioned his project, Time is Fire, before. You can find all of their stuff mm -hmm. on the Bandcamp page. Um, check out their 2020 album, In Pieces. Uh, it's very cool. Some of it has a Gang of Four feel to it, produced by Brendan Canty, fronted by Iranian-born Sufi poet Kamir Arsani, who's just excellent. Hey, also, since the last time we had alternatives on the show, Jim Rulin's book has come out, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records. And I found a spiel in there on bands coming through to uh, the SST offices in the late 80s. And oh. alternatives gets a, a mention here, okay? Yeah. Check this out. 
SST artists frequently visited the office in Carson, whether they were stocking up on merch or visiting to discuss recording a new album, there were always people coming and going. Mugger might be on the phone with Mascus and Amherst while Ginn negotiated licensing agreements with record labels overseas. Dukowski gave tours of the warehouse, which was always a popular spot with musicians who marveled at the stacks and stacks of records, tapes, and CDs and were encouraged to help themselves. Some bands would show up after a tour utterly destitute, without enough money to pay for gas or get home. After tours for group therapy and buzz, Thompson, this is Jim Thompson, our guest, Thompson recalled Ginn helped the alternatives get back to Richmond by giving them marijuana instead of money. <laughs> so there's that one. Yeah. And then uh, back to We Can Be the New Wind, Alexandros Anisiadis' book. Just uh, want to talk a little bit about the, the post-buzz band. Um, it says, because it's kind of a nice uh, summary. Here's We Can Be the New Wind. Alternatives kept it up until 1991 when they released two split seven inches, one with Carnival of Souls and one with Burma Jam, and went on to fade away. But they will always be remembered as a band totally ahead of their time. Here's Chris Bobst. I wouldn't change anything, even if I could. Besides, what will happen is always more important than what did happen. We were always looking for new inspirations. At a glance, alternatives will appeal to a large range of music fans. Fans of Victim's Family, Later All, John Zorn, Mid-Period Voivod, and Watchtower. Alternatives stretched the boundaries of hardcore punk to its extreme. Buzz is a perfect LP to pick up for a starter, which I did. And if this one makes your heart flutter, which it does, try their other records too. Nice Watchtower reference. Yeah, I thought you would like that. When I read that this week, I'm like, who's Watchtower? And I go, oh, Brant knows Watchtower. <laughs> All right, man, you want to check out these tracks? Yeah. History Lesson, Part 2. So this record, Ryan, was produced and engineered by Adam Green at Flood Zone Studios, uh, which we heard about in the interview. We've seen Adam before. He engineered Group Therapy and mixed Always August's Geography. He also did Guar's Hello and actually the Grizzly Fiction, Come On Bean Juice record that I just finished spieling about. And speaking of Guar, I'm not sure it came up in the interview, but similar to Chris Bobst and Greg Ottinger, Jim did time in Guar, circa 85 to 87, as Hans Sphincter, or Hans Orifice. Uh, he was on the infamous school bus tour, which he was telling me some wild stories about off-air. <laughs> He even came up around our oh, neck, of, neck of the woods in that bus. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised. Back then, yeah. just, you got to make it to the next town in order to make it to the next town, and somehow you'll make it home. Yeah. This record came out on LP and CD. No cassette, which is odd. The previous two came out on cassette, and we're hardly in the full-on CD era here. So, um, like, I was primarily yeah. buying tapes in the late 80s and well into the 90s, so... I, th I thought that was odd that this never came out on cassette. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners who don't own it, you can find a few of these songs in studio versions on YouTube. But unfortunately, as we've said before, that's that's it. Like some of these songs, unless people can find them somewhere that I, I'm not aware of, or maybe they're buried deep on YouTube somewhere and some more, someone more skilled at 
navigating YouTube can find them. Um, there's songs on this record that I can't find online anywhere. So hopefully the band will get it up on their band camp at some point. You can find this record, though, pretty affordably, I would say. Yeah. So, you know, keep an eye out for it in the shops. Yeah. I don't know. It just always chaps my ass when we have a record on here that listeners can't easily find somewhere to listen along to. I hear you. I mean, I don't know if you encounter this, too. I mean, there are a few different ways that people reference or spell alternatives out there. One word, two words, hyphenated. Maybe if you try those combos, you can stumble across it. Yeah. All right. Track one, side one, Pudgy. It's three minutes, 48 seconds long. I think it's probably the shortest song. They just come out of the gate swinging with a raging jazzy rocker. And then like at the two minute mark, they shift gears, uh, which they do a lot on this record. And Greg Ottinger just yeah. peels off a fret melter. <laughs> Not sure what the percussion is on the first half of this song. Maybe a wooden block of some sort, or I don't know. It sounds like someone clapping their hands on their cheeks, you know, with their mouth open. That's what it sounds like to me. I think it's wood blocks. I think it's the percussion. I thought know? maybe it was don't someone you? with a McDonald's cup and the straw. You know? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, both Jim Thompson and Steve Finberg are credited with percussion. So I thought it was like woodblocks, and there's some of this throughout the record. Yeah. Paul Waddy Watson on trumpet, like Jim said, a total legend in the Richmond scene and beyond. He's played with Cracker. He actually, actually, he's played with Dex Rom Weber, Half Japanese, Sparkle Horse, House of Freaks, FSK, Orthotonics total legend there's amazing footage of the trio playing this at dc space in 1990 the song pudgy and this is the one one of the songs you can find a studio version on on youtube yeah it's the first track i ever heard by alternatives there you go i wasn't ready for it i wasn't <laughs> ready for it but i am now <laughs> uh the next one is half cheek sneak six minutes 45 seconds a little mellower with this one but it it doesn't it doesn't stay that way they were definitely at peak creativity on this album. The whole band is just on fire. As always, I'm drawn to the guitar playing, and Greg's just smoking. This must have been so hard to play. Like, I'm... Hardly anything repeats in any of these songs. It's just, you know, they just go from one section to another, to another, to another. I'm not surprised to hear they practiced five hours a day, like five days a week. Yeah, you'd have to. I'm also not surprised to hear that you love the guitar because when there was some serious chugging at the end, I was like, oh, Brant's going to be all over that. More liberal usage of woodblocks in this track. But for me, I was totally keyed in on the bass playing on this record. Yeah. And some wicked bass, bass cording on this song. I loved it. Yeah. Simph riff sonics. That's what's going on in this song. Mm -hmm. uh, this definitely has the SST sound which Chris met, you know, obviously they mentioned they were, they were really into SST. Um, when Ben, when, when people describe the SST sound, this is it. Um, to me, this album was just truly impenetrable. Like I listened to this probably a dozen times this week and still have no idea how they have performed this. It's super impressive. Yeah. It's, uh, it's actually hard to keep up as a listener when you have this record on, you're just like, what, what, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> that one's up on YouTube as well in a studio version, Half Cheek Sneak. 
And then uh, we've got Sex Face, seven minutes, um, almost some Pups vibes with the guitar tones and the licks. Chris Bope's just running, totally. running the neck on that bass. Um, of course, I love at the one and a half minute mark when the heavy riffs come in. Greg's tone, yep. his tone is just killer. I love the big epic ending with the layered guitars and all of the, the echo and Jim's big tom rolls. There's a couple of great live performances of this song on YouTube, but unfortunately no studio version that I could find. Yeah. I'm not surprised to hear you mention me puppets as well. I had uh, fire hose yeah. down some, uh, Ed Crawford esque guitar noodlings on this track at the outset, which I loved. Yeah. Flipping it over. We've got nubbing eight minutes, 14 seconds, some more weird percussion, uh, some samples of waves. You can hear a kid going, come on, dad. And then they just shift on a dime to this slow woozy kind of thing. Uh, some breathing. If you really listen for it, you can hear mm -hmm. someone someone breathing. A lot of this is mainly Chris and Jim locking in this song with Greg kind of providing atmospherics. This is the mellowest track on, on the record, Nubbing. And you can find a studio version of it on YouTube. Yeah, I I was getting kind of Lawndale vibes on this track, but I think it might just be because it sets off the, the, the song with those ocean and seagull sounds, and it kind of sounds surfy yeah. to me. Um, but I also really, again, got hooked in by the bass playing. There's some serious like it almost sounds like like scratching on a turntable, but yep. you can tell it's like yep. just chugging on the, the bass, like kind of scraping the strings. Intentionally in that one spot, though, to make it sound like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that, yeah. too. Uh, and then the last track, Black Hole, 11 and a half minute tour de force. Unfortunately, not up on YouTube. Um, it starts with some samples, a doorbell, a cat, a mission control countdown, and then we're off. Chris Bopes told me about these samples. He said, it's Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Malcolm X, and Found Voices. A friend of ours in the band Burma Jam had an early sampler, and we worked these voices into the beginning of the composition. The loose concept mm. was the debasement of society by... Reagan and the Republican Party, Moral Majority, and Corporate Greed. Whoa. This whole track, truly insane. And like nothing I think I've, I've ever heard, it, it must have 20 different distinct sections in it. Some definite genovations. The middle section sounds more or less improvised to me. Uh, Greg pulling out all of the stops with his space echo at the end, and they, they just come back, storming back in for the last few minutes of the song. This is also the track that has HR on it, although I, I couldn't pick him out. It's not very prominent. Uh, also some bongo action on this track. We had some rototoms leading up to this track, but now we got some bongos too. It's yeah. just out of this world. Yeah, and that's it. That's the record. Uh, for me, this is a band at their creative peak. And like we've mentioned, there were two split singles in 91, one with German, German band Carnival of Souls, I'm thinking they maybe met them on their Euro tour with Universal Congress of. They're pretty cool. I was checking them out on YouTube a little bit, Carnival of Souls. And they were an instro band. And then you yeah. were you were showing me here, Ryan, that the other split they have is with Richmond band Burma Jam. Um, you can hear a bit of them on YouTube, not the, the single with, with alternatives. Um, they played together a lot, Burma Jam. Like they were a Richmond band, kind of 
they they're described as dub ska what what's that single sound like do you have the carnival of souls one as well oh yeah no i've i've got both singles yeah what are those song uh, what are the alternatives tracks sound like on those <laughs> i don't know man the alternatives yeah <laughs> they kind of sound like the alternatives they're cool i mean they i don't know how easy these are to find but i picked them up along the road over the years just simply because they said alternatives on them i'm a completist yeah great picture on the back of that um split with burma jam that we'll post you were showing me it's got the band together the two bands in the photo the two bands oh yeah they just look so badass yeah like they just finished shredding for hours here's some reviews ryan I'm not sure where this is from, but it says aptly named instrumental trio. The alternatives are a strange hybrid of American avant-garde guitar jazz, such as peddled by James Blood Almer, set on a collision course with space rockers mm. gong. As far removed from commercial tastes as possible, Buzz is a genuinely <laughs> enthralling masterpiece that refuses any notion of compromise. Three and a half stars. Here's from Alternative Press by Todd Avery Shanker. The Alternatives' third LP, Buzz, by far surpasses their first two efforts, as they seem to have harnessed their jazzified inspirations without actually suppressing the open-air jam session feel. As strange as it may sound, this instrumental quartet's music seems to vault forward in all directions simultaneously. Whereas bands like Blind Idiot God lay down a more monolithic wall of sound, the Alternatives create a gigantic buzzing force field with its magnetic charges and dynamic molecular makeup constantly swerving and transmor transmorgifying. <laughs> this is a hep album with buzz ranging from that of a gentle Thai bong bud to that of a Boeing 747 taking off into the clouds. Experience it. Here's from the Twin Cities Reader in June of 89. Genuine punk jazz. This all-in instrumental band cribs from Albert Eiler, Don Cherry, Beefheart, and Mothers. World music and the farthest reaches of fusion. And on the other side of the sound coin, they recall Black Flag, Acid Rock, and any number of smoke machine arena clowns, but with tongues in cheek, making perfect primal sense. The, alternator, the alternatives are onto something here. A kind of... call. College collage freakout assault. It's raw without pandering or ineptitude, a garage product that's aggressive but most importantly intelligent. The young band's music is not just an alternative to the horrors of modern radio and MTV, but perhaps an antidote. Check it out. And here's finally by this guy Neil Strauss. Not sure where this is from. This album is so hot, it's been stuck to my turntable for weeks, torturing my woofers with the best rock instrumentals since surf music. The alternatives fuse wild jazzy sax, hardcore guitar riffs, and drumming somewhere in between to form an anarchistic free-for-all where the only winner is the listener. Smashing genres like a pumpkin in November, the natives are comparable only to the hardcore free jazz fusion that John Zorn has been preaching. Oh, sorry, that's in the March-April 1990 edition of New York Review of Records. The artwork, Ryan, the, the front cover, photo by Joe Hoots. You've got the Easter Island statue, the rabbit, the glasses, 
the coffee pot, that cool building blocks logo. When I look at this album cover, I'm like, I can tell why they called it Buzz. Not just for the coffee, but I'm pretty sure that that Easter Island uh, statue is a bong. Pretty sure. <laughs> Could be wrong. Could be wrong, but pretty sure it is. Uh, little kind of gremlin demon guy in the bottom left. Pack of marbs and uh, matches. Totally got an 80s smoker vibe, I guess. Uh, keys and... Um, John Adams on the one coffee cup there just looks like the table of a band's house in the late eighties. Yeah. That's what this looks like for sure, man. Look at it. And you know, I was looking at the, the keychain. Look at how many keys are on that keychain. Remember when you used to have like 30 keys on your keychain? <laughs> wow. Amazing painting of the band on the back cover by Fred German. That's uh, a highlight. Yeah. Jim says in the interview, it should have been the cover. Hard to disagree. It's such a, wicked painting yeah the band's just you know looking super happy chris always that's chris's kind of permagrin there with his toque on love that such a great and it totally fits their their vibe you know all colorful psychedelic spastic jazzy i think chris actually has a jazz beanie on is that a is that a jazz beanie Could or is be. that a two yeah i think it's a beanie but just killer. The artwork, this is one of those records where the artwork, front and back, really, really fits the band. Oh, yeah. The A-side label, or side one, that kind of artwork on the LP label, you see a lot of that on their posters. I'm assuming that was somebody from the band maybe doing that. Yeah. The label also, like it has the song titles around the outer rim of it, and then it says... Uh, it, like it kind of says, you know, 1989, SST Records, SST 245, and then it says enjoy <laughs> as kind of the end to the song list. It says enjoy on uh, both sides. There is Dead Wax. Nice. Hit me. All right. Oh, and we should also mention uh, the B-side label. Pretty sure that is some uh, some horticulture. Looks pretty like sure. it. Yeah. Pretty, pretty sure. Um, so the A-side, Dead Wax, it says, quote, you are the authority and it's credited to philip k dick who we've seen before on the show you are the authority philip k dick of course sci-fi author who uh, wrote the Vallis trilogy which has come up before on the show uh, a scanner darkly and i love this title do androids dream of electric sheep philip k dick that's the a side yeah and on the b side in the uh, Dead Wax, it says, Ernest is here, Burma Jam rules. There you go. Another reference to Burma Jam. Ballot result? Yeah. Ballot result. What are your picks? Well, there's only five songs. So, I mean, I, I kind of pick them all. It fits really well as a record, but I have a, I have a strong leaning toward Pudgy because, again, it's the very... Those opening notes, first time I ever heard alternatives in my life. And so every time I put it on, it takes me back. Yeah, Pudgy's good. I think it's the only one with with the trumpet in it. Yep. I liked, trumpet. I liked Sex Face and I, liked, I loved Black Hole. But we can do Pudgy. Well, we can do Black Hole too, man. If you loved it, do it. Yeah, I feel like we should do one that people can at least hear. And Pudgy's one that's up on on YouTube. Okay. It's the only one of the three we just mentioned that people can actually hear. So, 
that don't own it. Yeah. All right, pudgy it is. Hey, thanks to Jim Thompson for being on the show. Totally. Thanks for alternatives being on the show. This is our last time with them, and it's too bad. Yeah, it is. Hey, Ryan, let's just let our listeners know, uh, I think we mentioned this last week, but we've got a crazy couple of weeks here. So um, we're taking next week off, but we'll be back in two weeks with... SST 246, the Trotsky Ice Pick El Kabong record. And we've got a special guest. You bet. We've got John Talley Jones on the show. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.